0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Slow Burn Media, an evergreen podcast, presents Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media Evergreen Podcasts and Killer Podcast Production. We have talked about family annihilators before. You have people like Christopher Watts, who killed his children and his wife, uh, just to cover up an affair. Uh, You have uh, Josh Powell, who killed himself and his children, and most likely his wife as well. This week, I'm going to take you guys back about 100 years to Detroit, Michigan, on July 3rd, 1929. And I am talking about the murder of Benjamin Evangelist and his family in what has become known as the St. Aubin Massacre. Since this case remains unsolved, it is important to note that some of the shady characters that pop up may actually be involved in this horrible tragedy. Was this a revenge murder? Something supernatural or cult-like? Or could the Black Hand Society be to blame? One thing for certain is Benny Evangelist was what one would consider today a cult leader. According to AmericanHauntingSink.com, it was in 1895 when Benjamino Evangelista was born in Naples, Italy. In 1904, he came to America for more opportunity. He had skills in carpentry, so he focused on real estate, and eventually became a successful landlord. Going by his new name, Benny, he had originally settled in Philadelphia with his brother, Antonio. But the two had a falling out, a weird one, to say the least. And according to Antonio's own accounts, he basically disowned Benjamin when he began having his so-called mystic visions. This apparently went against Antonio's Catholic beliefs, so he basically told him to leave. Benjamin picked up shop and took his craziness to York, Pennsylvania, where he ended up working on a railroad construction crew. Turns out, Benjamin's best friend in York was also a fellow immigrant from Naples, a man named Aurelius Angelino, and those two started looking into the occult. Apparently, things went Quickly downhill for Aurelius, and scary for the Angelino family. As if dabbling in the occult wasn't creepy enough, in 1919, uh, he basically attacked his family with an axe and killed two of his children. And that may sound familiar, so put a pin in that. He was sent to a prison for the criminally insane, and Benny, not sure what to make of Aurelius's actions took his family to Detroit. They moved in, his wife and his children, to a house on the corner of St. Aubin and Mack Avenues. It was a large, beautiful home. It was painted green and even had a pretty big front porch. And Detroit in 1929 was doing very well for itself. They were the automobile capital of the world. The city had seen a steady population boom between 1900 and 1930, the city was home to the big three car manufacturers, and living a middle-class income was pretty much the norm for its citizens. But just like any city with a significant growth, there was also an increase in crime. By the time the Evangelist family was found murdered, the city hosted more than a million and a half people. And according to the history of the FBI... They state, quote, even before the FBI's official founding, a special agent was assigned to conduct investigations in Detroit for the Department of Justice. By 1911, there was an official field office led by special agent in charge, J. Herbert Cole, who served at least through 1914. In the 1920s, Detroit was a bustling city, and prohibition was basically the law of the land. Rum runners from Canada frequented Detroit's shorelines, and Belle Isle was a common destination for these entrepreneurs. Although most prohibition violations fell to the Department of Treasury, bureau agents in Detroit had their hands full with criminal groups such as the Purple Gang, which controlled much of the illegal activity and would enforce harsh punishments on those who did not listen. In author Stephen Talty's book, The Black Hand, the epic war between a brilliant detective and the deadliest secret society in American history, says before the mafia took the American crime spotlight in the 1920s, there was the Society of the Black Hand, which made its take by terrorizing and extorting fellow Italians. Oftentimes, a threatening letter and a coal-blackened handprint on a victim's door did the trick. Kidnapping, murder, arson, and dynamite were other calling cards of this malevolent organization. The Black Hand declined with the entry of Prohibition and big-moneyed bootlegging and another little-known Italian-run outfit. So as Evangelist settled into the Detroit home with his family, he garnered a bit of a reputation as a religious fanatic. In Benny's basement, he had built his, quote, Great celestial planet exhibition by using paper mache wires and wood. He had built nine planets and a sun with an electric eye that sat in the center. Now, the basement also held a chamber where Benny would hold his rituals. He would mix up spells, hexes, and potions, and he even carried out his magical sacrifices. He kept a crude altar along with knives, bottles, and jars. Copies of his self-published book, The Oldest History of the World, discovered by occult science in Detroit, Michigan, were stacked around the room. Benny claimed to have produced the book through a series of nightly trances beginning in 1906. He said it was the first in a series of four books that would reveal previously unknown information relayed to him from God. Unfortunately for Benny and his family, fate, had another plan in store. According to the Associated Press report from the day after the murder, quote, the bodies of Benjamin Evangelist, his wife Santina, their three young daughters and 18-month-old son Mario were found hacked to death in their beds at their home today by neighbor Vincent Elias. Now, police reported at the time the murders were evidently the result of a fiend. Everybody's favorite word back then. Vincent Elias, 43, was a real estate dealer, and he lived at 2324 Glendale Avenue. Apparently, that was a thing to put in newspapers back in the day, which I find kind of disconcerting, thinking that if he was a witness, probably not the best thing to publish his address. So anyway, they had basically engaged in some real estate business, and so he actually was the one that stumbled across the scene that will probably stick with him the rest of his life. What he found was Benny slumped on the floor with his head completely decapitated. Sitting next to his body was one of the strangest discoveries pretty much any detective or officer in Detroit had ever seen. It was Benny's severed head with three large framed photographs of a child in a coffin. Now, it was later determined to be a post-mortem photograph of Benny's son, who had died several years before. And according to all the reports that I've been able to find, there is still no explanation as to what kind of message these photographs meant to convey. Now, the head of evangelist's wife, Santina, was also almost cut off. All the bodies were nude when found. That is, of course, except for Benjamin. He was fully clothed. And this was most likely due to the fact that the women had all prepared to go to bed. So their daughters, Jean, Angeline, Margaret, they were 5, 9, and 10. So basically where we stand is the dead in the home are Benny, evangelist, who was 44. This is basically what they called him, a real estate operator and quote-unquote divine prophet of a mysterious religious cult, and that's pretty much the description they give for him, and everybody else just gets an age. So Santina was 38, Angeline was seven, Margaret was three, Jean was four, and Mario was 18 months old. Now, that does not line up with what they had originally said in the first report, so we'll go with the second report and say that that was probably more accurate since they probably had no idea what the hell they were doing in 1929. And as we have seen, unfortunately, in cases like the Sam Shepard case, the O.J. Simpson murder scene, and later on with the John Benet Ramsey murder, crime scenes that are high-profile and hard to process for first responders— are probably the most difficult to get under control. And again, hell, it was 1929. People were more than curious to know what the hell was going on at their neighbor's home. So it's no surprise that police failed to keep uh, newspaper reporters and dozens of gawkers who had gathered around the house from basically contaminating the crime scene and destroying any potential clues, except for one, which was a bloody fingerprint on the front doorknob. Quote, the killer of the evangelist family was in what one paper called a frenzy, apparently with the intention to sever the head and arms of his victims. Behind the tragedy was a grotesque background of religious insanity, paralleling in its weirdness and barbarism any voodoo fetish of the West Indies. Unquote. To give you guys an idea of what the evangelist house was like, it was basically a two-story frame structure, had four rooms downstairs, had five upstairs in addition to a basement and an attic. So it was a pretty large home, nice home, for 1929. Now granted, he had six kids, so he really did need the space. On the upper floor, the two front rooms were bedrooms. The three back ones were actually unused. According to reports, were devoid of furniture. There was a bathroom that was located off a hallway between one of the bedrooms and one of the rear rooms. Now, opposite the bathroom door is the stairway leading downstairs. So, although Evangelist was killed in his office, he was fully dressed when he was found, as I mentioned before. And, again, I'm kind of reiterating this. His wife and children had pretty much settled in for the night. So, by the time the killer entered, they had been disrobed, I should say. Unfortunately for Patrolman Lawrence and Costage, they found the body of Mrs. Evangelist lying partly over her bed, and her head, again, was nearly decapitated. Worst of all, her 18-month-old son, Mario, was actually found in bed with her, and he had uh, been hacked in the head as well, and he was resting his head on his mother's arm, The other arm of the mother showed signs of an attempt to amputate it. So I don't know if this killer was trying to take a souvenir or was just trying to commit as much heinous crime as he could, but it's definitely something that stands out as being unusual, I would say. Opposite bedroom, connected with the mother's room by a single door, The bodies of the other three children, two of them in twin beds and the third lying on the floor. Margaret's was discovered on one bed, Jean was in the other, and Angeline was the one on the floor near a door opening to a long but narrow upstairs front porch. Now, like the parents had been hacked, so had the children, and they were also hacked around the head and shoulders. Now, they... Didn't suffer quite as severe of injuries. It seems that Benny was the target, if you want to call him that. I think at this point that makes the most sense. Why would he be a target and why would somebody feel like the need to take out his whole family? I don't know the answer to that. But I do know it's time to hear from this week's sponsor. All right, we are back. In the Detroit Free Press article, they say nothing of value, such as money, jewelry, or papers, were actually disturbed. And this is despite Evangelist, quote, having a reputation of being a considerably well to do real estate operator among the Italian colony on the east side. Again, Evangelist was described by neighbors as being, quote, confirmed religious fanatic, unquote. His religion also became something of a business, since cards found lying about his office read, quote, Mr. Benny Evangelist, divine prophet, author, and history writer. He also is said to have received as much as $10 for private readings during which he called upon the powers of his own cult to heal various ills, either spiritual or physical, with which his patients were afflicted. Ten bucks back in 1920-something, especially with the economy as it was, probably wasn't the most uh, affordable, probably around 150 bucks these days. Probably something like seeing a therapist. The cult, evidence indicated, was known as the, quote, Union Federation of America. And I'm guessing nobody is surprised to find out that, yep, Mr. Evangelist himself was the founder a little more than 30 years prior in Philadelphia. As the founder, according to a preface in the cult Bible, which Evangelist had written, was supposed to be, quote, with the power of God. But poor Mr. Evangelist was left to set up shop in a dingy but electrically lighted room in its basement. And according to police at the time, the quote-unquote prophet had set up one of the weirdest altars ever uncovered in Detroit. Now I'm going to read directly from the article here. Quote, eight or ten wax figures, each hideous and grotesque to the extreme, and each presumably representing one of the, quote, celestial planets, were suspended on the altar in a circle by wires from the ceiling. Among them was a huge eye, electrically lighted from the inside, which evangelist referred to in his Bible as the sun. The walls and ceiling of his religious sanctum were lined with light green cloth, which bulged out in places which resembled something of a padded cell. Today, Evangelist would probably be standing on a street corner preaching his beliefs from everything that I have read. But again, this was 1929, and he was considered a healer. And according to some neighbors, he even prescribed herb medicines, whatever those are. Granted, this is back in the day where anybody could be a doctor, so who the hell knows. So at this point in his life, Benjamin was a carpenter by trade, but as we know, he is really known for his religious fanaticism. And police said the head might have been placed on the chair as some sort of strange religious rite. On the night of July 23rd, 1929, Benny Evangelist and his wife were found, you know, again murdered. And it was two days later when Wayne County Coroner James Burgess commented in the paper that Quote, this is the most unusual case. A single perverted maniac must have killed them, although it seems impossible that some of their screams would not be heard. Now, there was a funeral held on July 6th. A crowd of, no surprise here, 3,000 curious residents actually packed the streets. We see this practice all the time these days with the FBI, but... At the time, police were hoping to find a suspect at the funeral. And they actually did arrest one man for, quote, acting queerly, not politically correct, with excited suspicion, but was released shortly after, on the 4th of July, where families should be celebrating the independence of the country, enjoying barbecues and fireworks. Pretty much every police squad in Detroit was in a citywide search for the killer of this family. Police had initially investigated a connection to a murder of a mother and her three children two weeks prior, but unfortunately the connection was not valid. There was no trace of a weapon found in the home, and police did find bloody fingerprints on the door latch, but nothing to hold them. Now, there was also a reward of $1,000 being offered by the Detroit police for any information. Again, back then, that was a lot of money. Angelo DiPoli was arrested the day of the murder with a blood-covered knife, but police couldn't connect him to the family, despite neighbors claiming he was a frequent visitor at the home. In March 1930, the Associated Press published a report with the headline stating eyewitness to brutal Detroit ax slain finally turns up. Well, unfortunately, the witness was four-legged. A dog. Quote, The witness is a shaggy, brown, mongrel dog, which belonged to the children of Benny Evangelist. The animal disappeared at the time Evangelist and his wife and the four children were hacked to death on July 3rd, 1929, in the course of a routine and record check the dog's license number, the dog was not found. But yesterday, a woman reported that a dog with a 1929 license number had come to her home. But when she learned who had owned the animal, she decided not to adopt it. Three years after the murders, a man nicknamed the Rear Axle murderer, Robert Harris, confessed. Police believed they had solved the crime, but after investigating his claims, they found Harris was lying. There have been leads from time to time, but the case is pretty much as cold as any case can possibly be. I hope you remember me mentioning the Black Hands in the beginning of this episode as possibly being a part of this murder. And the reason that we say that is the Black Hands were an interesting outfit. They were kind of the seeds of what eventually became the Mafia. According to Giatano D'Amato, the name Black Hand comes from an article in an April 1908 piece titled The Black Hand Myth. And again, Black Hand stands for Mano Nera in Italian. The Black Hand was a method of extortion and gangsters of Camorra and the Mafia practiced the method. U.S. newspapers in the first half of the 20th century sometimes made reference to an organized "quote-unquote" Black Hand Society, a criminal enterprise composed of Italians, mainly Sicilian immigrants. However, many Sicilians disputed its existence, objected to the associated negative ethnic stereotype. This has never been repeated in history ever before. It's just an interesting tidbit to the story. On the March 13th editorial in 1909 in response to Joseph Petrosino's assassination, the Evening Telegraph, which was a newspaper for the Italian-American community in New York City, said, quote, The assassination of Petrosino is an evil day for the Italians of America, and none of us can no longer deny that there is a black hand society in the United States. Now, the roots of the black hand can be traced back to the Kingdom of Naples as early as the 1750s. The English-language term specifically refers to organizations established by Italian immigrants in the United States during the 1880s. Now, a minority of the immigrants formed criminal syndicates living alongside each other and basically victimizing their fellow neighbors Not quite the neighbors you'd want to have. Now, by 1900, the Black Hand operations had pretty much established operations in all of the major cities. And guess what? They also operated in Detroit. It was in 1907 that a Black Hand headquarters was discovered in Hillsville, Pennsylvania, which was just a village located a few miles west of Newcastle, Pennsylvania, which, if you're familiar with the state, is outside of Pittsburgh, and the Black Hand in Hillsville established a school to train members in the use of the stiletto. Speaking of OJ, more successful immigrants were usually targeted, although as many as 90% of Italian immigrants and workmen in New York and other communities were apparently threatened with extortion. Typical Black Hand Tactics Involved sending a letter to a victim threatening bodily harm, kidnapping, arson, or murder. The letters would demand a specific amount of money to be delivered to a specific place. It was decorated with threatening symbols such as a smoking gun, a hangsman noose, skull or knife dripping with blood or piercing a human heart, and was frequently signed with a hand, held up in the universal gesture of warning, imprinted or drawn in thick black ink. And according to the First Family, Terror, Extortion, and the Birth of the American Mafia, they date quote, It was the last feature that inspired a journalist writing for the New York Herald to refer to the communications as black hand letters. And the name stuck. And indeed, it soon became synonymous with crime in Little Italy. Again, the term black hand became readily adopted by the American press because the American press loves any named group. Just look at what's going on today. And the press pretty much generalized the idea that this was an organized criminal conspiracy, and they came to be known as the Black Hand Society. Tenor Enrico Caruso received a Black Hand letter on which were drawn a black hand and a dagger demanding $2,000. He decided to pay, quote, and when this fact became public knowledge was rewarded for his cap with a stack of threatening letters a foot high, including the same gang for fifteen thousand dollars. Now, the reason that I bring all this up is that there was a black hand letter found in the home of the evangelist family. So, it's not hard to think that they may be connected. It's just a thought, but it is a theory for sure. Now, do you guys remember the bloody fingerprint that was found on the doorknob? You probably are wondering what happened to that. Well, the short answer is nothing. The long answer comes from a reporting at the time by the Detroit Free Press, and they state, Detectives working on the case included all of the members of the Homicide and Black Hand squads, as well as several from Inspector Charles S. Carmoda. Fingerprint Bureau, and they were unable to link any of the suspects to the crime by any of the finger and footprints left about the house by the slayer. Now, again, let's not forget that the crime scene was completely contaminated for hours. There were hundreds of people who probably could have left those footprints. The bloody fingerprint, on the other hand, is a completely different matter. Now, if they couldn't match that to anyone they arrested, then the perpetrator probably got away with the city's most heinous murder. Benny, Gene, Santina, Angeline, Margaret, and Mario were all murdered that day. So this all leaves us with the question of who wanted to kill this whole family? Why sever his head? Why make the crime scene so gruesome? One theory posed by police, according to the Detroit Free Press at the time, was, quote, the night before the murders took place, the evangelist had made a call to the watchman of a house that was being demolished. He told the watchman that he had purchased all the salvageable lumber from the wreck and would arrange for the wood to be picked up and delivered to his home. The plan was that Evangelist would meet the truck the next morning to pay the deliverymen. Evangelist and his family were murdered later that night. However, the deliverymen were a no-show. Evangelist had planned to have the money to pay them the following day, yet no cash was found in the home following the murder. Sounds interesting, right? I find myself asking more questions than I can find answers. Yes, this guy was clearly leading some sort of cult. How many followers did he have? I couldn't find out. Could this have been the imagination of a man with undiagnosed schizophrenia? Well, his manic personality when it came to writing his quote-unquote Bible certainly sounds like something that could have been controlled today and would probably be considered mania. But who knows? Go to any street corner in any major city, and you're guaranteed to find someone claiming to be a prophet of God. I, for one, think he pissed off one of the black hands. And basically, that's how I think he got himself wrapped up in the murder. He could have also easily taken somebody's money and something that he had predicted that was going to happen or he was going to heal them, and he wasn't healed Somebody could have turned around and came back and slaughtered him and his family for revenge. The possibilities are endless, and it's really unfortunate that it's been 90-something, a long time, almost 100 years since the murders of the Evangelist family, and nobody has been held accountable for the crime. The city, Detroit, has obviously been through a hell of a lot since 1929, It grew to be a metropolis, only to see poverty and crime, as well as a deep recession nearly destroy it to its core. The economic collapse of 2008 was another blow to an already downtrodden town. The city eventually had to file for bankruptcy protection and was the leader in foreclosures nationwide. Things really were not looking good for the city of Detroit. Crime continues to be a problem for the city, but... That will most likely continue until the city has fully reborn. Now, it has helped that the city has had multiple mayors and police chiefs go to jail for corruption. Hell, Kwame Kilpatrick still sits in prison to this day for all of his backroom dealings. Not good for a city when you have your leaders literally sitting in jail. Not good. And you guys remember Mick Foley's boss from Beverly Hills Cop? Yeah, that guy, Gil Hill, he was a real police chief, and he was shady as hell. People say he was involved in more serious crimes that I cannot mention here, but he died in 2016. So, have that. Next time you watch Beverly Hills Cop, just think about all the shady stuff that he was doing on the side. But, on the other hand, the good news is you can now finally say that Detroit is on the rise once again. Thanks to investors like Dan Gilbert, who run Quicken Loans, the city is being polished and will one day return to its former glory. As far as the murder of the evangelist family, I think we're all left sitting without any answers and a whole hell of a lot of questions. So I end this week with this Who do you think killed the evangelist family? thank you guys so much for tuning into this week's episode of who killed as a reminder i drop new episodes every friday wherever you get your favorite podcasts and again i've said this before and i'll say it again i will be dropping a new season of my passion case soon look for new episodes on tuesdays once the new season launches as always if you do enjoy this podcast as well as my other shows like I mentioned in the beginning of the show, you can support this podcast by clicking on the Donate button or the link in the show notes. Or you can also contribute via the Venmo app with my username at Bill-Huffman3. And again, each contribution, big or small, helps keep these slow burn podcasts going. Or wherever you listen to your favorite shows, these five stars do help keep the important cases that I cover, such as... Amy Mahalovic, Angela Hicks, in the spotlight. It's very important. So if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as the new shows that I have in the pipeline, follow me on Twitter. I have an account. It's at BillHuffman3. You guys, I appreciate you so much for tuning in every week. It wouldn't be a show without you. Until next time, all of you, stay healthy and be safe.